Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast. I am the esteemed sound engineer, Craig Randall. I'm here with our usual host, Buzz Burrell. Buzz, how's it going? Good to talk with you, Craig. And indeed, the esteemed sound engineer is a valuable person. You clean up the audio tracks every single week. Thank you for doing that. No problem. <laughs> well, we're back today um, in a bit of a just a, a friend's discussion about how COVID-19 is, where we're at with it, how uh, we're all dealing with it as, as athletes and runners. And um, I personally want to look back a little bit because I find the flow of information around this is fascinating if you rewind to you know, as, as little as a month ago and what we knew and how we were responding versus the information we have now and how we're responding. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about that. Um, but how do you want to start, Buzz? Yeah, that's a good point. Things have changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. Well, first, we want to say that the Fasted Known podcast has some of the best guests on ever with amazing information. And yet we're going to talk about the pandemic a little bit because everybody is anyway, aren't they? And so we might as well talk about it. And Craig, we got to finally just, you know, suck it up and acknowledge 2020 isn't going to come back. When this first came down in late February and middle of March, they're announcing three-week stay-at-home orders, which are gradually being relaxed. But 2020 is going to look a lot different. It's possible the future for the next few years is going to look a lot different. So I think it's worth discussing this. Right. Well, let's maybe let's start off with um, acknowledging what you said, and I, I fully agree that 2020 is um, is not the end of us discussing <laughs> the coronavirus, and the future is going to change a lot. So, how do you see the future changing um, from a societal level, and then maybe we can get more into the athletic level? Right. Thanks, Craig. Well, first, I want to, we all have to acknowledge that it's a global pandemic. It's terrible. People are going to get sick and die. People are going to lose their jobs and businesses will be lost. So that's our starting point. You know, that's where we're coming from. And I think the initial reaction was based on fear. And fear is good. Fear works well. Like you're up on a mountain, lightning's going to strike. Boy, you're going to set a PR for getting off that mountain. But then after that, you want to stop and think about what happened and what you're going to do best. So I think that's where we're at now, Craig, is we had some initial reactions that were very appropriate, the stay-at-home orders, basically putting the entire country into a medically-induced coma. That was correct action. But now it's time to take a look at where we're really at and how we can do better. And I want to start off before we get into how, as athletes, we can do better, is look at some of the science behind this and just straighten out some of the current misconceptions. Mm -hmm. And Craig, this, this one pertains to you because the, the first one that we're always hearing is this affects everyone. And it really doesn't. It's completely different. This mm -hmm. disease is very different in that young and healthy people aren't nearly as affected as older and infirm people. Mm -hmm. And yet you, of course, are treated like everybody else. And the statistics on this are dramatic. 89% of the of the uh, fatalities have comorbidity conditions, have something else that was already wrong. In Colorado, 61% of the deaths are out of nursing homes. In Boulder County, there's been 47 deaths. 37% of those are in nursing homes. So right out of the gate, 
your generation is being made to kind of toe the line in order to keep my generation, if you will, safe. Right. And I've, you and I talked about this just one-on-one off, off the record a, a week or so ago. And I completely agree with you. And I think it's interesting that um, we have a, we have a, an interesting uh, environment where we live in Boulder because we've got people who are even younger than me, people in their early twenties at the university and they're on a lot of them granted have a lot of the out of state students have gone home. I think they probably went home last month or even later than that or earlier than that. Um, but now what's become kind of a hot topic around town is that if you're riding your bike up to the flat irons or running or going to Chautauqua or whatever, and you pass the college, uh, University Hill area, there are a lot of students around and they're, they're not social distancing. Um, it's almost like it's summer break and they're just living it up like it was, you know, any summer break during any of our lifetimes. And the backlash in our community to their behavior has been really interesting to, to see. And I think it comes back to your point about certain generations are taking the brunt of, um, consequences that may not actually exist well the consequences definitely exist but not for them right <laughs> uh, i mean sorry you have to say this is that the this was came out six weeks ago a long time ago the cdc reported that the uh, fatality rate for people between 20 and 49 was five out of 1000 mm-hmm. and that's not even factoring in core morbidity factors. So if you're a college student and you don't have other issues, you're not going to die. It's just, right. it's not going to happen. Now, of course, the obvious issue is you could become infected and you could spread it to other people. But then the other rejoinder is to who? Personally, yeah. I am wearing face masks. I am being very safe. I'm practicing social distancing. So if the students are doing this, honestly, it doesn't affect me. So it's kind of an interesting way to tease that out. And I want to mention at this point that if they end up going to the hospital, it will burden healthcare workers, but they don't go to the hospital. I mean, I've had this, many friends, maybe you have two have been infected and they call Mm -hmm. the hospital, they call the doctor, the doctor says, stay home. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting to tease this out. And again, we want to note that this is a serious illness but it does not affect people equally. Right. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where the frustration is starting to build and that um, it seems like, and I don't fault the administration or the CDC or with what the rollout was like for this right. a month or so ago, because no one, I mean, you make it totally apolitical and you just evaluate what's happening and you do the best that you can do. And I don't think that um, that you can fault the actions that were taken. But now that we have a little bit of um, hindsight and a lot more data, um, because a lot more tests have happened, it's time to give this um, some specificity. And I think right. what, you're, what you're saying is, and what I think when I pass you know, the college kids out in their yards partying at three o'clock in the afternoon, I think that in general, the... The other concept that you hear a lot about is the herd immunity um, application. And I almost think, what harm is it when the lowest risk population, like 20 to 30 year olds that I'm seeing partying, if they're interacting with themselves and 
assuming they're not, you know, visiting their grandma and giving her a kiss hello the next day. I think that there's a lot of value to, to having these populations of really low risk people interacting. And it would help, I think, give us all some enlightenment if uh, the public health officials started to acknowledge that and that, gave us new guidelines. There you go, Craig. I think yeah. I really appreciate what you said, which is our emergency declarations back in March were fully appropriate. It's just like running away from a thunderstorm in the mountains. You, you figure it out later. You run first. But now what are we going to do? And so the second aspect that we've been hearing over and over, if not over again, is we don't want to overload the hospitals. We're not. It hasn't happened. Uh, mm -hmm. New York City, it definitely did. They got slammed, maybe parts of New Orleans. But actually, the opposite has been a big problem. Hospital mm -hmm. beds are empty. They're right. struggling financially. So it's really quite ironic. The Mayo Clinic declared a $3 billion write-down four weeks ago. Uh, Boulder Community Hospital, at the peak of our infection rate here in Boulder County, they had four CV-19 patients in their entire hospital. Moab, of course, closed down. They, they shut down the national parks, the local national parks there, and public lands closed it to camping, banned people from coming because they had a 17-bed hospital, which is empty. They're losing money. They're, they're struggling to stay afloat. So again, it was a good call back in March, but now let's stop saying the same old things over and over again and adapt to where we're at now. Right. Yeah. And I think you see, you know, even this week, some of the businesses that I like to go to around town are starting to reopen and you can come in and out and uh, politely wear a mask. I haven't actually had anyone tell me to do it, but it's sort of that just sign of respect to your um, fellow man <laughs> when you're out in public, just to, like you are when you're on a trail. It seems like that's become a pretty highly adopted practice when you're out running or hiking or doing whatever outside is that you pull up a buff around your neck or you wear a mask or just try to give some sign of, you know, acknowledgement and respect to people passing. Um, but at the same time, Right. And I, I think at the same time, it's just the messages that I've been reading and hearing over the last week or more have been just about masks. And it hasn't been about anything else dealing with um, some of the, you know, the, the herd immunity aspect is something I'm really curious about. And um, I've heard people liken it to the only solution um, until there's a vaccine. Right. Because there is no solution with any kind of totality until a vaccine happens. But <laughs> having having a lot of the population exposed to the virus and have them, like you said, the statistics are really telling because very few people show signs of affectation from it. Right. Um, that it's a it's a curious uh, practice that I think hopefully becomes more accepted. And some of the countries, European countries have already done it. I think some of those, um, I think the Netherlands experimented with it, but Sweden definitely did it. Sweden did it. Yeah. And to a certain extent, Germany. Germany. Yeah. yeah. So that's a good point. So again, you're using logic, Craig, so careful there. 
you might, <laughs> <laughs> which is, <laughs> which is epidemiologists will say, you know, eventually you're going to get it. And yep. you want to just slow down that curve so hospitals don't get overloaded, which they're not. So that's just off the table. So quit saying that. And so what you're really doing is crippling people's livelihoods in order to say, well, you're instead of getting this in April and May, you're going to contract this in September or October. So what? I mean, what's the difference? And so like you said, if people contract it now, they develop a herd immunity not they, but the society does, which means there's less chance of a spread because there's less vectors. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what Sweden did. And they, they took a few more people getting sick and a few people dying. Again, it's old and infirm people. And so they didn't close down their economy. And here's something, if I may, just put right back out there. No one talks about collateral damage. So the metric right. is shocking shocking to me. What we have is uh, public health officers running the country and our state governments and our local governments. Now, these people are great. They do a good job. I love what they do. And they have one metric and one only, keep people from dying no matter what at any cost. Mm -hmm. There's no other consideration, which is mm -hmm. Great. Glad they're doing it. But it's sort of like asking the president of the Chamber of Commerce to run the country. Whoa, you don't really want them to do that. You want their perspective. And so I think we have to balance our perspective and take into account collateral damage, which is tremendous. It's not just people dying of coronavirus. It's people with psychiatric problems. People don't attend AA meetings. People who are victims of domestic violence. And of course, there's about a quarter of a million deaths due to poverty every year. And poverty is going to increase dramatically because of this. So there's collateral damage. Let's factor that into the equation in terms of how we manage this. Well, that may be a good segue then to talk about how you uh, acknowledge the collateral damage effects and apply that to some of the areas that we're interested in for this podcast. So we, a few weeks ago, or maybe a month ago already, you interviewed two race directors and and that was something that they were getting at. I don't think they used the word collateral damage, but they suffered collateral damage from the actions that were taken. And like you said at the beginning, it's not going to all of a sudden be, we're not going to be in the clear in a month to host races or to um, right. interact at events. You know, so how do you foresee or what's your, your take on what we can expect from sanctioned events, races, the Tour de France, you and I are big fans of. We, you know, I, I looked at cycling um, pro tour schedule and that's been recast for, for the fall. And they're, it's interesting how they're handling that with the amount of races over a really short period of time. But so let's start there with events. Yeah. Wow, Craig. <laughs> Good call. Well, first, uh, when was it? Thursday we uh, which is like uh, six days ago, the governor of Oregon canceled all events, any event, whether it's a rock concert or the University of Oregon football game, which also means any race until at least October. And she said, we cannot reopen until there is access to a vaccine or a reliable cure. So wow, quick heads up here. 
there's never been a vaccine for any coronavirus. <laughs> never been one. There has never been a cure for any coronavirus. So I'm not sure if she knew what she was saying, but again, we have to start with let's readjust the misconceptions and go to some statistical facts in order to answer your question here, which is if you wait for those conditions, you're going to be waiting possibly forever. <laughs> I mean, like right. AIDS is a good example. Now there is a cure for AIDS. There's a drug for AIDS. But for 44 years, they've been working on a vaccination for HIV and they don't have one yet. Uh, and so flu. Flu is a good example. They work like mad on flu every year. And it's usually, I checked it out, and the 2019-20 uh, flu vaccination is coming in around, they think, 60% effective. So at 60%, it's like, eh, you know, so. I, you still want the vaccination, but this is no cure. So we have to go back to your question here in a more realistic way which is, I don't know. I think that's a <laughs> darn good question, isn't it? If they keep that standard, which I don't think they can do realistically because the collateral damage will just be absurd, uh, you can't do it. So I think there's going to have to be a well-managed, tapered reopening under certain conditions. And it, Craig, if I may interject here, I definitely don't like to see a flagrant civil disobedience. That's mm -hmm. uh, that's that's not where it's at. We don't want that in a, a time of a pandemic. Uh, my home state is Michigan. They had people out there with you know, rifles over their shoulder marching in the street, saying, "You know, protect our constitutional rights." Boy, I just mm -hmm. got to editorialize. It's not about that. It's about mm -hmm. science and doing what's right and managing this as best we can. So. Pardon me for saying what this is, what we're not talking about. So I think what we are talking about is let's go back to what you said, which I'm doing as well. What can we as individuals do? Okay. Mm -hmm. And I wear a face mask anytime I go inside anywhere, except for my own house. And I think that's perfectly reasonable protocol. I've been doing that in Asia for decades. And even if you think, well, heck, you know, I'm young, I'm going to, this will be a very bad case of the flu for me. So what? Wear the colors. Show support. Because as runners, as you know, we always want to be polite. We always want to show respect to other people. So I always wear a mask indoors. And then outdoors, you know, tell me what you do, but we're probably doing the same thing here. If I'm going out for a hike, run, or a ride, I have the ultra band around my neck. And when I approach someone, I just pull it up over my nose and mouth, right? Mm -hmm. And like, why not? It's it's saying, yeah, we're in this together. You're, you're wearing the flag. So I, yeah. I think that's perfectly appropriate. So I strongly recommend masks indoors. And I recommend the ultra band or the boof headband when outdoors. Um, and I want to pause here, Craig, if I may. Indoors and outdoors are very different. So I just got to say, I think the the public recommendations on this have been wrong. Uh, I think you have to be very careful indoors because you have limited dispersion and the uh, what the, the droplets can main, be in the air and circulate around and people can become infected. 
Outdoors, on the other hand, there's infinite dispersion, particularly with breeze, and the volume, the person-to-volume ratio is very, very small. I think if one is not congregating in groups at close proximity, I think the possibility of infection is very low when outdoors. Just my opinion. And then I will couple that by saying that when you look at the infection rates and the, particularly the fatality rates, if you are healthy, you're going to fare way better and you might not even show symptoms. So there's a particular enzyme that people who are obese have a very high enzyme, enzymatic count of this, and that is clearly leading to morbidity and a very high infection rate. If you exercise, that very same enzyme goes down. And so I think what they could have done on March 14th is issue a stay outdoors order. <laughs> it might have been more helpful than a stay inside order because it is very healthy for the coronavirus as well as anything else to be outdoors in nature exercising. So how do you apply that? I mean, that's the, the thing as you were describing that, I thought, wow, if we're getting really, because I, I think the other thing that's interesting to note during this time is how quickly we as a society, for the most part, adopt to, uh, adapt to change. And so what used to seem really bizarre when you would see someone traveling to the U.S. from Asia and they were still wearing their mask or you'd see images of um, Asian cultures wearing masks just in their daily life, what seemed odd about that like a month ago has now become fairly, um, you're fairly accustomed to it now in our society as a result of this. And so the behavior changes, I think it's just so interesting to see how quickly we adapt to new behaviors. And as you were describing the care that we take as runners when we're outside, um, I feel like we're, as a population, I feel like runners might be fairly adept at um, embracing and being able to maintain some level of um, security among other people at events. Um, as you were saying that, I mean, think about when you walk into a store, a grocery store now, they've got the whole place lined out in terms of um, lanes of traffic and directional arrows and um, mats on the floor that tell you how far apart you should be from the next person in front or behind you. What if you applied that to a race scenario? So say you show up to a race, race morning, you're picking up your bib and you're separated by six feet from the person in line around you and behind you and you're wearing a mask and um what if there's innovation or some sort of new mask that's developed where it's like okay we really prefer people to if they're going to be racing among amongst each other and near each other what if you wear a mask but someone has developed a mask that is a lot more um uh breathable or but still safe and would we do that would we wear these and just get used to it and just to have it be something that we adopt as as a new normal wow um, interesting craig wow interesting thoughts so you're applying the how restaurants are going to reopen to how races might for example restaurants right. now in boulder there's uh they're considering 
adapting the parking spots outside. So you take over the street or the alley and put tables outside so people can maintain more distance, things like that, mm -hmm. which I think is a really good idea. Can that happen mm -hmm. with races? Wow, that's interesting. My guess is that things like group runs are going to come back. Now, say you got mm -hmm. 10 people and if those 10 people are, you know, not sitting there hugging each other the whole time. Uh, I think they can get by with that. I think the law and the mandates will relax, allow them to do that. Mm -hmm. The Chicago Marathon, hmm, you know, 35,000 right. of your closest friends, not see, <laughs> not seeing that, right? I guess in my head when I was <laughs> unraveling that scenario, I was thinking about, you know, a, a smaller trail race or something where there's just more space and less people. But you're right. If it's something like a huge major marathon in a huge city, that could be a different, a different scenario. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't sign up for it personally. And I think that, yeah. that's, one of the, that's one of the ways I think that the public officials need to adopt their recommendations is to allow for individual responsibility and individual choice because this affects yeah. everyone so different. So a blanket mandate is clumsy because it just doesn't apply to everyone. For example, the, those models, remember those models? Your friend, those models and back in March are just, you got five different emails every day of these complicated yeah. models. Those models are based on Wuhan, China. You know, they had certain assumptions. Mm -hmm. They didn't know what the factors to build the model. So they just took the factors out of Wuhan. And so if you're from Wyoming, this doesn't apply. <laughs> right. You know, the, the yeah. effects of social distancing and they're showing how it helps out. Well, if you live in Wyoming, this is just complete rubbish. Social distancing, you're, uh -huh. you're doing that every day anyway, so forget it. So I think some <laughs> individual choice has to happen. So me, I'm not going to go enter the Chicago Marathon. But other people, maybe they're comfortable with that. You see what I mean? And so I, my yeah. guess is what yep. the officials will do is start to permit events up to, say, 100, right? Like the, yeah. the, the, yep. the ultra race where you can just maintain some distance, spread it out, things like that, and try to make it work. But the big events, wow, I don't, I don't see them coming back in 2020, but Craig, I do not know. <laughs> like everybody else, I have no bloody idea. I'm just, I'm just talking here now. But there are things like, like you said, I mean, there's data. We have a lot more data now. We have a lot more, um, we're more accustomed to what we're going through. And now for people to, I, I think people seem to be at least embracing this like collateral damage aspect where it's like, well, at what point do we say not enough is enough, but just can we apply like some, some specificity to this? Can we say, you know, this population, please like use care, but you're able to do this. Um, this population, you're more at risk. Please, we advise you to do this. Right. And I think when you said when you said about the group runs coming back, I mean they're back. Uh, like people are out. People who aren't cohabitating, people who aren't uh, in a romantic relationship, they're they're back out there. Like you see it every day now. And um, and, and I think maybe what I'm kind of theorizing is that the the official response to that kind of thing has, uh, from what I've seen, been really left up to the individual. Like there's people, there's officials making recommendations, but in terms of it actually being enforced when 
people are breaking the quote unquote rules. I don't really see that happening. So I can kind of see this maybe flipping back from us as the populace uh, dictating back to the officials what we're okay with because we're just starting to do it anyway. Right. And there's such a high level of personal responsibility in that. But I think, um, uh, you know, you like to think everyone would take a lot, a lot of personal responsibility in this and hopefully they will. But um, it seems like from what I'm noticing, at least in terms of, of runners and people outside, um, it's kind of like they're already just taking advice, but then applying it to their own situation. So, you know, whether that means you're young and healthy and you feel confident that you can go be around your friend that you don't live with. Um, you know, so I think maybe the, the officials may take a look at what we're doing and just say, okay, this is, this is how people are responding. Can we put out something? a new set of guidelines or statements based on how people are actually out there. You wish. Um, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Maybe it's too optimistic. But. No, as Craig, that's a heck of a point. And that's, that goes back to what I said a few minutes ago, where I do not like flagrant civil disobedience. I do not like people protesting in the streets. That's just wrong in times of crisis. We ought to all be patriots and take care of each other. While at the same time, ultra runners, uh, athletes in general kind of don't like BS. We don't like propaganda. So I would hope is that the public officials change their message and, and bring it mm -hmm. in line with what we know now, with the science we know now, and, and update it to what we know now so we can move out of this together in an orderly fashion rather than in a chaotic fashion. Mm -hmm. We don't we don't yeah. want chaos, but uh, like you said, people are already making their choice. The cat's out of the bag. So, like you said, yeah. uh, when was it? Two weeks ago, I think City Council Boulder City Council said, "Well, we're thinking of making it mandatory to do this, this, and that." And I was thinking about my contacting my friends on City Council and saying, "Yeah, don't do this." And I said, "You know, why bother? It's done. Mm -hmm. It's over. The cat's mm -hmm. out of the bag. Spring is here. You can't put it back in." Uh, the pandemic is terrible. It's going to have a terrible impact. But people are starting to realize that the hardships of this pandemic are not caused by the virus. The hardships mm -hmm. are caused by our attempts to control the virus. That's different. Mm -hmm. And so the public health officials, in my opinion, need to adapt to the current scientific understanding and their current recommendations. Yep. Yeah, and I think I, I think you and I have talked about this in the past too, just in terms of our own state. Like you gave the example of Oregon, and um, Colorado, I think has done a really good job for the most part. Our governor has been um, handling it and um, speaking with the public really frequently. I think he has a public address like almost every other yes. day. That's broadcast live on the radio and on Facebook and all these places where people can can and should access it and hear what he's saying to just learn about what the latest data is and recommendations and that kind of thing. So I feel really fortunate that our state has been um, pretty good about how they've handled this. But I also feel kind of bad for other states where you've seen a lot of, you know, the surfers in Huntington Beach are freaking out, <laughs> breaking the boards over other people's heads and just, you know, having all kinds of outrage over access to beaches and, um you know, Rocky Mountain National Park, for example, here has been closed, but I think it's it's due to reopen at the end of May. Um, 
So in terms of recreation, I feel like our state has done a pretty good job in terms of balancing people's uh, physical and emotional needs with, you know, recreation and being outside versus pandemonium because the access has been so restricted. Totally the case. Governor Polis immediately shut down the ski areas, which blew my mind. That's like a billion dollars down the toilet. Uh, But that was a nexus of of virus spread because there's people coming in from Italy and internationally and then infecting basically our state from that little spot. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he kept the Mm -hmm. state parks open. He never closed a state park. And then he mandated the six-foot distancing rule and then recommended face masks. So he's always nuanced his message. Then he had his stay-at-home order, and now it's a safer-at-home order, which is appropriate. You are safer at home. So good. That's that's I can appreciate that. Yeah, Governor Paulus has done a good job. And and now moving Mm -hmm. more forward, I like what you said about Le Tour, (laughs) <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how this goes, because you know mm-hmm. Prudhomme was talking, talking, talking about when the Tour de France was going to be held, and they're talking about this, this, and that. And then the next day, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the Prime Minister of France, said, "No public events till uh, August." Mm-hmm. And it's like he just blew him out. You know, he just he didn't pay any attention. So in a way, I kind of yeah. like this, Craig. You know, the, uh, the the people running the big, giant, for-profit events were walking on water. And then the uh, prime yeah. minister says, no, you're underwater. <laughs> <laughs> so so, I, yeah. so I, I really feel for the restaurant owners and the, uh, the wage earners who can't work. And I really feel for our race directors. But the big for-profit corporations, eh, mm-hmm. that's, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think maybe in closing, I wanted to just have you um, speak to some of the data that we've gotten on fastestknowntime.com because you and I talk about it. You, Peter, me, Jeff, we talk about it a lot just amongst ourselves. And we put it out a little bit, but let's assume that not everyone reads or hears the things we're saying. So can you talk about the level of FKT activity that's happened in the last month or There's so? There's two ways to phrase this. One is we're buried, <laughs> we're freaking out, uh, or I could be a little more objective than that and say our F- FKT submissions are 2.6 times higher than two months ago and just twice as high as they were a year ago. We're getting 14 FKTs per day and seven new routes per day. And the other aspect of that, in case you're wondering, there are no house elves working for FKT.com, unfortunately. There is Peter Backlin and myself who manually enter everything. And it's like, wow. You know, one hand, this is good work. We're really happy to do it. This is how it has to be done. But on the other hand, it's manual. And so there's a few ways to look at this. One is regarding races, like I said, New York City Marathon might not be coming back this year. Hopefully, group runs already have, hopefully, small trail races where there can be dispersion can come back. But FKTs are booming. 
and they're going to continue mm -hmm. to boom as national parks start to open up. For example, the FKTs we've seen, Craig, are not coming in from Rocky Mountain National Park or Yosemite. No one's run rim to rim to rim in the Grand Canyon. It's all this fun mm -hmm. little stuff in their backyard. They're finding cool new routes that haven't been done before and really working them. And secondly, they're coming in from Germany and Sweden. <laughs> We're just, I mean, I, I'm almost yeah. fluent in German now. It's uh, it's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Even processing so much information. Right, right. The in. yeah. Hagen das. See what I mean? I, I just got this down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it is. It's it's been really fun and fascinating to observe from you know uh, how people in our community of FKTers have responded to this and. Um, and just to remind the listeners, we have a, a feature on the homepage called Tracking Now. And typically, we reserve that feature for some of the bigger known premier route kind of attempts. Um, we've had Appalachian Trail attempts on that uh, in the last couple of years. But it's a really good place. We have one that was just completed. So it was on the Ridgeway National Trail in the UK. Um, but we're tracking that one live so that you can just revisit this page every day to check in about how the FKT, it's usually multi-day um, attempts, how they're progressing. This particular, um, this particular would, gentleman finished this morning, however. Right. Yep. That was complete new FKT. Um, but I would anticipate too, just as we get into nicer weather in this hemisphere, that we'll see um, some more really premier submissions coming in. So just a reminder to pay attention to that that feature on Great. our site. And here's another heads up, if I may, we're going to ask for money. You know, I've been very shy, <laughs> very, very shy. Because, you know, we're just, it's a love of the sport, obviously. We want to support FKTs. But we're going to start saying, could you send in a little money? Because, you know, the race fee is $150. And if you send in a route, you know, kick in 10 because it takes, mm -hmm. you know, Peter or I sometimes 15 minutes of just our manual labor to process this stuff. So why not just kick it in? Nobody is getting paid. I mean, it's just that's not what's happening. We pay for server space and things like that. And so I'm just going to be a little bit more out there right now on this particular podcast and say, Consider supporting us. Go on Patreon, do the monthly donation, go to the website, pull down the little tab that says support and kick in a little donation if you're liking this. It's not going to buy my new boat. It's just going to pay for server space and things like that. And it, it make us emotionally feel a little bit better about the amount of time we're spending every day processing this. Yeah, good point. And people just will remind them of the, the URL, fastestknowntime.com slash support, and you'll find all the methods by which you can show your support to us. And next week's podcast, Craig, speaking of uh, over there, we've got Europe coming up. Yeah, we got two. Yeah. This is good. So I, here's here's a quick heads up. We have two upcoming. I'm not sure what order they're going to be in, but we have a fellow from Belgium, Bart I can't pronounce his last name. My German is fluent now, but my Flemish, not so much. And he's going to tell us about the scene over there, which is really different than how we do it here, right? So the, the German, Swedish, and Belgian scene is, is quite a bit different. So he's going to tell us all about that. And mm -hmm. we have Fernanda Maciel, who's living in Chamonix mm -hmm. from Brazil. 
and she's going to tell us how what she's been doing and she's just wow this i'm i'm intimidated i'm going to be the host i'm going to be I'm going to be starstruck. I'm going to have a difficult time conversing with her. So, Craig, maybe we have both out of handle Fernanda because uh, she, this is going to be a good one. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Call me in for backup if you need. Thank you. Need I'm going to be so. <laughs> I'm going to be tongue-tied. I'm, I'm afraid this might happen. Yep. <laughs> well, that all sounds good. That sounds like a great schedule. And as always, we publish on Friday morning. So stay tuned. And if you're listening to this. You're very likely subscribed, but if you're not, please do. And we'll talk with you next Friday. Thanks, Craig. Good job. Thanks, Buzz.